Sun goes down, sun comes up. Days can drown in a plastic cup in this town. In their ever-present pursuit of entertainment, education, and some adjective to be named later, the Homestar Army proudly presents Trek West 5, a conglomerate podcast of science fiction, politics, humor, and pretty much whatever else we want to talk about. Trek West 5 is brought to you in part by RocketWebDesign.com, custom web design at template website prices. Designs by Dee.blogspot.com, your online home for all your digital scrapbooking needs. Need a home along the Wasatch Front? Contact Lisa DeBagere with Kirkham & Friends Real Estate. No one will work harder for your home. And thehomestarmy.com, blogging to the world since 2004. Your hosts for Trek West 5 are Joey and Peter. Good evening and welcome to Podcast 120. I am Joey. And I am Peter. Why did you point at me? <laughs> Just throwing your curveball. Yeah, you did. <laughs> but you handled it brilliantly. Well, thank you. This just goes to show that you are an excellent co-host. <laughs> I've been elevated. You huh? have been elevated. Wow. Well, yeah. well, considering that I own the podcast now, it's very gracious of you <laughs> to give me the title co-host. <laughs> uh, well, welcome back, everyone. We hope you've had uh, a nice couple of weeks off from the podcast. Yeah. Uh, we really Did you are catch up on some of your backlog listening. Yeah, <laughs> We're, I, we are sorry about the the fact that we it took so it took us so long to get the uh, podcast one nineteen posted, um, but uh, hey, it finally got there, right? Yep, yeah, right? got eventually. Um, and uh, Joey, how was your week? Crappy. Yours, Pete? Crappy. <laughs> yeah, we both kind of had lousy weeks. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, the week is over. We've had uh, an enjoyable meal together, and uh, we're we're ready to talk about such wonderful things in the Babylon Five universe. Yeah. Well, before we get into the Babylon Five universe, you wanted to talk about traffic. I did. <laughs> Thank you for reminding me. I did because uh, I I have to travel down to uh, to Joey um, uh, when we do season wrap ups, and I was. When I have to travel down, I'm like traveling right in the midst of the traffic. Like I'm going with it. Yeah. Uh, and so it's pretty terrible. Well, add on to that that they've been doing like these um, construction changes, yeah. like just r- completely redoing the roads from uh, uh, For most of the 15, county that Joey miles, yeah. lives in. Um, anyway. So what I wanted to start off with, because I've got a good side and i got a bad side. Okay. I want to go with the bad side and then turn it around with the good side. So the bad side was when we're down in American Fork, which is where the end of like the traffic jam really kind of stopped. Things start to thin out. Yeah. So what they have, they've got four lanes that come down into three. So I'm in the fast lane, what we would call the fast lane or the far left lane, also known as the passing lane, um, that isn't the, uh, oh, what do you call it, the HOV lane, the, okay, the yeah. carpool uh, lane. Vehicle, yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. I don't have any hot chocolate to <laughs> quench my, my throat here. Um, anyway, so I'm in that lane, and the lane that goes away is the HOV lane. The, the carpool lane. 
So we're all like funneling down. It's like really, really painfully slow. Like I was happy when we would get to 15 miles an hour. Nice. Oh, it, it was bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so we're getting down there, getting down there, getting down there. Eventually, I finally get to the very end where the two lanes officially meet and merge. And not only is it the fact that there is two lanes merging, but there was an accident oh, right no. at the end of it. So some two cars just had a little fender bender, and instead of pulling off to the road, guess where they stayed? Just right there in the lane. Right in the middle of the two lanes. So, so it's four lanes going down to two. Going down to two, exactly. So I'm like suddenly realizing, I'm like, oh, son of a gun. So I'm like turning over, like turning my blinker on, trying to like gesture to the guy behind me in the other lane. And he finally let me in, but uh, I was so frustrated. I was like so mad. Like, what in the world are you people doing? Pull off! Pull off! Anyway, that that's was the bad. That's the bad. The good is that as before I got to any of that stuff, I was coming up a point of the mountain, so going up the hill, and I was in the fast lane again, uh, you know, going past some people, and there was nobody really behind me, so I just stayed in the lane. Typically, you're supposed to move over, you know, when there's someone behind you. So I was just staying in the lane, and I noticed someone probably about six car lengths back, you know, that distance amount, that they were starting to come up on me. So I'm like, okay, I'll get out of the way. So I signaled, got over. And that car came alongside and went past. So I, I typically look at people on the highway. Okay. I just, I, I, that's, I tend to do that. I don't know why. Um, anyway, I just kind of glance over. And as the person is driving past, they turn their head and then give me this huge smile. <laughs> So I'm like, ha, and I, I sort of had a, you know, a smile on my face, but then I got a grin uh, from it. So she saw it for maybe like a half a second as she went right on past me. And I was thinking, wow, that was really nice of her to give me this, this smile because I think she recognized the fact that I saw her back there and got out of her way. And it made me realize how much I love the, you know, the quote unquote, courtesy wave okay. uh, amongst drivers when, you know, you let somebody through or you're like, hey, yeah, yeah, go on ahead of me or whatever. It, you the guy gives a little courtesy yeah. wave. That, it, that's what makes society turn, you know, in my opinion. <laughs> that's a little niceties, huh? Yeah, if we could just have more courtesy waves, a little smiles from people, then I think this world might be a little better place. Uh, anyway, that smile kept me going through all of that traffic. <laughs> it really did. Because I remember thinking like, oh, what a pain. And then I, oh, that lady was really nice to smile at me. <laughs> and I, I finally got to your house and I mentioned like the the weirdness that's going on on your street too. Yeah. And I was like, well... Yeah, that lady smiled at me. So I'm, I'm not, I'm really not angry. Well, you know, it, it actually was a lot better than it could have been because for the past two months, as I'm coming home at two or three o'clock in the morning, uh-huh. when I hit the point of the mountain, it's down to one lane. Oh gosh! And so this is I-15, major interstate, and it's down to one lane, and there's there's still traffic on that at one o'clock in the morning, and so it has taken me sometimes up to two hours oh, to get home. Heavens. 
I haven't even just spent the night at my house. (laughs) Until I figured out I can go down this frontage road and I can go up over the top of the mountain and drop down back the other side and get back on the freeway in Utah County once it's past the point of the mountain and they've started to widen the lanes back out. So yeah, for there were like three or four trips where I was like, oh, are you kidding me? I, I mean, I'm not kidding you. It's two in the morning and I am stopped on the interstate. <laughs> not moving. <laughs> that was frustrating. Oh, that is terrible. That but really uh, you know, to go along with your little story also of the smile, uh, there were some people here at the office that went out to see the new Three Musketeers movie. Oh, yeah. And they invited me to go along with them. And as we were as we're there in the lobby waiting for the movie to start, it was actually it was a different group that was as, as like a team reward, and I had helped them with some stuff. And so they're like, "Hey, let's bring Joey because he helped us." So, you know, we're there waiting in the lobby, and I see another Novell employee down down at the other end of the lobby. And so I, I waved at her, and I went down to talk to her. And she is good friends with someone that I really enjoyed working with, who has now been laid off, who got laid off during the merger. Mm-hmm. And she said, "Oh, you know, this other person, Stephanie. She's here. She's in the movie." You know, she's in, in watching this movie right now. Oh, I thought you meant like she got laid off at this company and now she's gone and she's doing movies <laughs> no, professionally. No, no she was, no, she was in watching okay. the movie. And I said, oh, well, you know, I'd like to go say hi to her. Where, where is she sitting? And so she said, oh, we're on the very back row in the furthest back corner. <laughs> and, and she said, my seat should be open. So I, I walk into the movie and I just go up and I go all the way up the stairs into the very far, furthest seat and I can see the woman I'm looking for sitting there. And I go over and I sit down in the chair next to her and I just start staring at her. <laughs> and it's dark. <laughs> and she's not looking at me. She's like, excuse me, sir. That seat is already taken. And I just sit there and stare at her. And she's like, no, sir, there's somebody looking. There's somebody sitting there. And she turns to look at me and she's like, what is your problem? And I just keep staring at her. And then she goes, oh, Joey. <laughs> And uh, we exchanged email addresses. That was why I wanted to go in this year, is because I don't have an email address to keep in contact with her. But I just thought this would be really funny to just go in and sit there and stare at her. Because <laughs> she's one of those people who, you know, gets very uncomfortable very easily. And I thought this is going to be hilarious. Wow. Way to take creepy to a new level. <laughs> awesome. I, I applaud you, sir. It was fun. I enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, not not an audible applause, applause, but uh, I applaud you nonetheless. Silently, verbal applause. Um, okay, okay. Um, Facebook find of the week. Facebook find of the week. That's a tough one. Facebook week. find of the week and a half yeah. or two weeks. Uh, and actually, there was an entry this week that I did not have the time to review. It's the uh, Claudia Christian podcast interview. Uh huh. Um, I will not be I did not even consider that for this week I'll push it into next week's because I didn't have time to review it before we started right, tonight right so I want to give it a fair shot so I'm going to actually include it in next week's entries uh, but we're going to give the award to Listener Fishhead for <laughs> Ernest Borgnine um, there, there was there was another one that was the uh, the superhero you know, everybody wants to be the orphan superheroes, uh, demotivator kind of poster. That one was also really, really good. But the Ernest Borgnine is the one that just ripped a laugh right out of me. <laughs> me as well. <laughs> I, I mentioned to Joey that I, when I saw that, I just immediately started laughing <laughs> because it's just it's Ernest Borgnine. It's that big, big old smile face. <laughs> and while we both we really did enjoy the um, wow, why why is it that people are you know? 
think so highly of orphans so much. <laughs> uh, that one was was good too. Um, but congratulations, listener Fishhead. Yeah. Uh, so he will get some award. I think he's on his second or third. Second or third. I know he's probably. won at least one. Yeah. Agreed. Um, okay. Let's do. Okay. We have some brainy smirk. He says, "Happy Halloween from the Brain Nation." I am being Charlie for Halloween, and of course, I have three hot chicks dressed as my angels. Oh, that Charlie. I was thinking Charlie Young from the West Wing. (laughs) (laughs) Which is interesting because when I first read this, I thought, Charlie for Halloween and three angels. Like, Charlie? Charlie Brown never had angels surrounding him? (laughs) What is this about? Uh, but, uh, yes, it's uh, Charlie's Angels, the okay. television show and possibly movie. Um, you should send pictures. Yeah, absolutely. Send pictures. He continues, Also, Minions, send in your comments about Isaac Asimov's Foundation. We will discuss only the first book of the series, Foundation. Additionally, I think the overlords should dress up as the two old dudes from the Muppets for next podcast. <laughs> Uh, I don't see that happening. <laughs> I'll dress up. I don't know all I have to do is put on a suit and tie, right? <laughs> um, anyway, now for a special Halloween edition of Brainy's Nook of Darkness. <laughs> Good. Well, the Malleus Malification. It is a book. It is the scariest book I've ever read. Maleficum, by the way. Uh, what? Maleficum. We discussed this before the podcast started. No, we did not say that it was pronounced Maleficum. Okay. You were remembering that wrong. <laughs> All right. Um, anyway, back, back to his, his email. It was originally a treatise. It was then used as a field guide for... Witch Hunters. <laughs> the title translates to, quote, The Hammer of the Witches, close quote. Written in 1486 by, I think that's supposed to be Heinrich Kramer, but there's no N, so Heinrich? Heinrich. Yeah, but there's no N. I looked it up online. So it is Heinrich. Okay. Oh, my German names are uh, quite well advanced. (laughs) Um, Who was an inquisitor for the Catholic Church. First published in Germany in 1487. The content asserts that witches do exist and provides instructions on how to hunt and murder them. Yes, this was real. It's scary because it's true. Don't read this unless you are ready for heavy and terrifying details about our Anglo ancestors. The book outlines how every witch must be of evil intent, must be in cahoots with the devil, and must have been permitted to be a witch by God justifying the murder. Hmm. It is possible that Vorlange wrote this. (laughs) (laughs) The final call is that it is one's duty to engage in as many witch hunts as possible. Our roots sure are scary, but it is essential to know where we came from as well as where we are going. So, okay. Brainy's Nick of Darkness. Thank you. We are well darkened. (laughs) (laughs) I I wish I had a proper tagline or something like, 
I feel like I got my intro. Yeah, definitely. Down. I was trying to make my voice gravelier and gravelier, so I'm glad we took some time to uh, get prepped for, for this. Joey's Culture Corner. Enlighten us with light. <laughs> so the Culture Corner this week is the book Anathem by Neil Stevenson. Uh, I'm just going to read a little bit here from the Wikipedia entry on the book because I think they did a much better job of describing it than I could off the cuff. Major themes of the novel include the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics based on a directed acyclic graph. Yes, that is much clearer. Philosophical debate between characters espousing mathematical platonic realism and characters espousing mathematical formalism. The idea that the human mind operates in certain fundamental ways as a quantum computer. Platonic realism as a philosophical basis for works of fiction. The theory of aperiodic tilings. Large portions of the book involve detailed discussions of mathematics, physics, and philosophy. Most of these are discussion most of these discussions use fictional Arburn Arburn terminology, but treat ideas from actual science and philosophy. So he created a whole entire fictional language that he intersperses into the book at different points when he's talking about certain mathematical or philosophic concepts. But this is all written as a science fiction novel. I want more Brainy's Nook of Darkness. <laughs> as an appendix to the novel, Neil Stevenson includes three things called calca, which are scientific papers about real subjects, but written in an in-universe style, using his fictional language to, to express many of the concepts. It was a fascinating book. It's about, I think, 1,200 pages or so. Really, really entertaining book, but you, it is absolutely mind-bending. You have to change the format of your brain in order to actually understand the book. <laughs> and, and seriously, when I put the book down, it all made sense to me and I understood it. Three months later, when I came back to it, I was like, I can't even understand what this book was trying to say anymore. That's like how fundamentally mind-stretching the book was, that as soon as my brain had a chance to, you know, elastic back into its previous shape, I couldn't even understand the novel anymore. Okay, so what's the point? What's the saving grace in all of this? Well, it's a science fiction novel about a, a world dealing with first contact with aliens that are actually, not, they're not even aliens, they are from a duplicate... Uh, Universe, so it's you know the the multi multi world uh, theory of quantum mechanics. Some version of their world managed to cross the boundary between between versions of the universe and enter into someone else's. They they had to go out into outer space to do it because their method of doing so would have destroyed the planet. So they go out into outer space to do it, and as they turn around and they're heading back towards the planet. Of course, they're seen as alien invaders from another planet by the world that they're coming into because space travel doesn't even exist in the quantum mechanical version of the world that they actually have entered now. I am so lost <laughs> right now. <laughs> like, you were only talking to two people, and you were talking to uh, Brainy Smurf and listener Jim <laughs> with how complex you were making um, this. Annie. A fan of the podcast borrowed this book from me, and I know she really enjoyed it as well. It's really, really good science fiction, but there is so much more than just the science fiction to it when you actually get into the fact that it's teaching you real math, real physics, uh, real philosophy. It's, it's absolutely fascinating work. I give it a thumb up. All right, well, 
Some book Joey talked about. Anathem. And, uh... By it, Neil Stevenson. Um... You might get confused reading it. You might, but you would enjoy the process. And you would definitely confuse me if you ever tried to explain <laughs> it to me. <laughs> uh, okay, well, up until this point, I've always felt like, eh, maybe we could read something like that. No. No? Not, not even, even, not not even, even, it, huh? not even remotely interested in something <laughs> like that. Man, my book reading is so, like... Juvenile, really. <laughs> Let's be honest, it is. I'm happy with Harry Potter. Okay, yeah. All right, let's go into episodes. Okay. We are going to cover episodes uh, 21 through 22 of Babylon 5 Season 4. We'll start off with episode 21, Rising Star. Joey, would you read the summary? Sheridan faces the consequences of his actions in the Civil War while the League of Non-Aligned Worlds morphs into the new Interstellar Alliance. Okay. Um, I, I kind of like this episode. Oh, I enjoy this episode. Uh, there, there's this thing at the beginning where the president is talking about, the, the new Earth president, she's talking about uh, we have to separate the people who acted because they agreed with Clark from those who acted only in fear for their lives. Right. Uh, okay, I wrote down, not guilty by reason of fear for my life? Okay. Is so that a reasonable... I don't think it is. I don't think so either. Good to know. I, I'm glad we're... At least we're on the same page about that. You, uh, is you, she... A moral, a moral truth, a moral absolute is a moral absolute, regardless of the cost. She was... I mean, that that's akin to the whole um, Nazi argument. Oh, I... I did it because I was told to. Yeah. You know, that that's not an argument. You know? <laughs> it's not a oh, I did it because I was afraid that, you know, I might die. Well, you know what? Stand up for your morals. Otherwise, you have the morals of the people that you're being uh, commanded by. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I absolutely was frustrated by most of what she did and said in this episode. I don't. I think the point of the character was supposed to be this. Oh, I'm a political person, yes. and you know these are the you know realistic things that we have to deal with. Uh, instead of like, I saw her as a villain, and I don't think that JMS was writing her as such. So here's what he says: As much as I like a good space battle and the eloquent poetry of a final shot made in desperate hope, the cold hard fact is that while generals come and go, battles are won and are lost, and empires rise and fall. Bureaucrats, politics, and backroom deals go on forever. If Babylon 5's mandate was to treat things accurately, then it needed to be just as accurate in showing political ramifications of taking the kind of stance Sheridan took uh, during the Earth Civil War. Morally right, but politically inconvenient. When President Luchenko says, I'm not here to argue ethics with you, that is very much the point. Governing isn't about ethics. It's about convenience, expediency, and control. When it gets into other areas, it's more about morality. Here's what, you sh here's what I think you should do, and not ethics. This is what I think I should do, based on critically evaluating the situation. Morality can be readily imposed and enforced. Ethics cannot be. I, I, which is all a way of me saying, I think you're wrong. I think, I think we're supposed to interpret this character as somewhat of a villain. Really? Yeah. Okay. Just, but, but as a virtue of the fact that 
I think it's clear that Straczynski considers politicians as a class pretty villainous. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, I, we next have... Marcus is dead? Yeah. And uh, Susan is emo? Still dead, yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, Franklin's you know sitting in the captain's chair. Uh, faster. Faster. Uh, let's get there. Faster. Okay. Now, when you say it, it sounds dirty. <laughs> What? No. <laughs> okay. I, I read something into what you were trying to say. No. It wasn't there. Sorry. I, I was trying to indicate that it was goofy. Uh, because, uh, I don't know. I, I don't really even care to talk about okay. it. So we're just going to move beyond that. The scene where Ivanova was upset and crying, I actually thought she did a pretty decent job with that. Yeah. But... Based off of an Ivanova, you know, type performance, she she exceeded her standards. I think she did fairly well with that emotion, and we both have said that she doesn't usually handle emotion yeah. well. Um. Oh, she, I, I kind of pointed out. Uh, so Ivanova knew that uh, Marcus loved her, and thus betrays Marcus's last wish, which is that she never know. <laughs> <laughs> I just like that. I, as I was watching, I'm like, huh, she knows, and therefore it would upset Marcus. So his last wish, in, in vain. vain. Yep, all right. Jakar <laughs> uh, and Londo uh, apparently seem to be getting on better and better with each other. Yeah. Or at least they're in this weird phase of... Where they're trying to figure out what their relationship is now. Yeah. Um, what Straczynski says about this is he, he says uh, there are end of the line touches in this episode Londo's coming elevation to the role of emperor is talked about here almost out of nowhere because I wanted to get that on the books before the end of the fourth season on the premise that I would never have the chance to see it portrayed in a fifth season similar in rationale is Sheridan's speech about choices, consequences, and responsibility. For four years, I'd been running around telling everyone I met that Babylon 5 was about those three things in that order. And while we'd seen a lot of choices made during those years, we had not yet seen all that we needed to see of the latter two. We had seen Londo making bad choices, had seen the consequences of those choices, but he hadn't really taken responsibility for them yet. Nor had we, seen, nor had we yet seen the consequences of Lanier's unspoken but unnoticed love for Delenn. All of that had been on the boards for season five. So with the likelihood of a fifth season outside the realm of probability at the time of its writing, and with those points left undramatized, I felt the need to have someone actually speak them out loud. Which is a bummer if you're a writer, because you want your story to be told in enough detail so you don't have to end with a mission statement of, well, here's what I wanted you to get out of the story. <laughs> it's supposed to be implicit. Lacking that ability, I turned to Sheridan. So he is speaking for the author when he says, during my time on Babylon 5, I learned about choices, consequences, and re responsibility. It was clear and to the point, and I hated having to write it more than any of you will ever know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I made note of that because I, as we've talked about many times, that is the whole point that uh, Straczynski is trying to get across through this series. Yeah. Choices have consequences, and you don't always have to... You know, just because you're left with bad choices doesn't mean you have no choice at all. You know, there are still choices to be made in there. So I, I, 
enjoyed the nod that he was trying to give to that. I understood what he was doing with it. And I viewed it from the lens of, okay, he's trying to do his little wrap-up thing there. And it's clunky because he can't, he's rushing through right. it. Okay. I, I still don't love it, but it. I yeah. get what he was trying to to do, and I appreciate and why he it. had to do it. Right? Yeah, and I appreciate that. Um, so uh, let's see. I wrote uh, the president seems all wrong. Um, uh, <laughs> like her her idea of a compromise by rights. I should give you the medal and then have you shot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's not a compromise. <laughs> yeah, her whole plan is just wrong. Um. Uh, let's see here. Then the show goes off to... Garibaldi? Yeah, Garibaldi. Okay, so there's that scene where they storm the... the yeah. Center. Oh, that was... What person, knowing that, like, oh, yeah, we have to be careful around here, has a box delivered to their door out of nowhere that has a button on it... And pushes it? Who pushes that button? <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> who sees that box and says... Uh, oh, yeah, this is probably normal. No, you run like heck the other way because you know something bad is going to happen. Well, think about what the box does when he pushes the button. It makes... Uh, Porky the Pig. Yes. It's a cartoon. This piece of this episode is uh, straight-up Warner Brothers cartoon comedy. That's what Straczynski's going for here. Fail. Uh, because, honestly, what I don't understand is... Okay, fine, he pushes the button... He's just a stupid peon who, you know, he I doesn't... Think it was supposed doesn't to be think. a flashbang. Um, yeah, yeah, I get that, yeah. but n- nobody pushes that button who's intelligent at sure. all. Then, um, they... Knock the wall down? They knock the wall down and repel from the ceiling! Wanted, that was the part I wanted to get to. Where are those guys repelling from? <laughs> and, and, and why not just shoot the people... Straight down. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and those guys drop from the ceiling every time. I'm like, wow, did they not think that through? <laughs> and then at the very end, Garibaldi finds Elise, and he's like pretending like he broke in someplace. Not that he has this overwhelming force of people who just broke down a door. Like, excuse me, a an wall. entire wall. He's like, oh, come on, we, we got to get out of here. And he's like looking around as though someone's going to shoot him at any minute. Yeah. That, they screwed that up yeah. so bad. Well, I, like I said, I think it's supposed to be cartoony, and it just, it, you're right, it does, it fails. <laughs> you are giving it a saving grace that I'm not sure it deserves. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see here. Oh, the Sheridan uh, speech, and then poor Lanier kind of already mentioned that he's like oh all love is unrequited mm-hmm. <laughs> emo Lanier I guess um, uh, when the white stars go flying over the press conference I always chuckle I'm just like that would be so awesome to be Dylan and be like they're here <laughs> and you know every general in that room is going <laughs> I mean that seems like the dumbest thing in the world to do. You, we've awesome. been fighting and fighting like, no, look, we are not, you know, alien peaceful. conquerors. We're, we're not here to destroy <laughs> you. Let me send my attack fleet screaming over you. you over. Come on. <laughs> I love it. I always love that scene. <laughs> and how did they not know about it? How can that be a surprise? 
Like all of a sudden, white stars just show they up. They jumped in. You think they jumped in? I think in? they jumped in. <laughs> oh. uh, that just seems uh, enough said. Um, anyway, so Sheridan takes the deal, whereby he says, "Look, I'll resign. You know, you give me the medal, and all of my people, they get amnesty. Amnesty. Yeah, they are not to be charged at all. Put it in writing." He's got it in writing, and then, come to find out, he's the new president of the new alliance. Yep. Um, and that, uh, who was that guy that, who was that general that comes in at the end? Don't. Okay. Anyway. The, the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, apparently. Yeah, I guess. He's pretty angry about it, and Sheridan's like, ah, ah well, tough. Sucks I, love, to be I love that he makes him open the door. He's like, yes. <clears throat> the guy's like... This is so humiliating. Yep. <laughs> if I'm Sheridan there, I still want to punch him in the gut. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe, maybe that's bad, but that's the way I feel. Okay, so Earth decides to join the Alliance, and Mars is going to become free. Yep. Free Mars. They're not even going to wait to have an election or a, a, a vote on this. Mars is free. They're just saying Mars is free. Well, we know from in earlier comments in-universe that Mars has already had that vote and has declared themselves independent, and Earth re- mm, refused okay. to recognize their independence. Good, good call. Um, so, Delenn and Sheridan marry. Um, Jacquard leaves his eye. He's a bit of a weird voyeur, isn't he? Yeah. Um, and then Ivanova leaves. I, I, I really like I uh, Londo and Jakar sitting together at the end. And then we're starting to see that next evolution of their relationship together. And I, I just, I enjoy that. I enjoy the scene. I do. Listen to comments. Okay, uh, let's do money bags first. He says, Honestly, after Endgame, could any episode have measured up? The new president of Earth can't act. Ivanova's leaving. And I think we get uh, another comment from the new president about how Sheridan should have magically, quote, worked within the system to oust Clark. I wish he had ripped her a new one when she said that. At least we get more Bester. Uh, we didn't even mention Bester. Yeah. He kind of comes back for a little bit and I'm like, nah, I don't care. <laughs> uh, TV6, Sci-Fi 6. There is actually one thing I want to mention about Bester here. All right. Just to refer back to the Straczynski book. Uh, He says, One of the noteworthy but quieter performances of this episode is Walter Koenig's scene with Sheridan. It may be one of Bester's most human moments, and Walter brings that out in spades. He's still a jerk, but he's also capable of a love so profound that he would go to this extreme. He's human, flawed, smart, and deadly, all in the same scene. And that's a very hard list for any actor to pull off in such short order, but Walter does it and makes it look effortless. This is why I wanted to read it. This scene was inserted in order to set up the coming telepath war, which I hoped to, and still hope, to get around to telling one day. Hmm. Uh, we, you know, we heard that uh, a few weeks back that Straczynski has the rights to Babylon 5 back now, and that he had informed Walter Koenig that he was thinking about doing something else with the Babylon 5 universe. The fact that he's Talking about Walter Koenig in that sentence makes me wonder if the idea rolling around in his head is the telepath war. Wouldn't he be too old at this point now? 
Well, the telepath war we know happens some number of years after the formation of the Interstellar Alliance, and and there's room in there for him to say, well, yeah, that's that's how many years it took for the telepath war to really come to a head to the point that I wanted to jump into the story. All right, all right. Uh, Brainy Smurf says, dumb, 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 dumb. <laughs> and suddenly we realize that Clark the Claw was the only bad person in EarthGov. Now that he is gone, everything is fine and everybody is let off the hook as every branch of the government that just murdered civilians is up and running. Once again, no blame to anybody except for the box. Holy moly, that new president chick is the worst actor yet. <laughs> I didn't think she was that bad. She was, she was kind of stiff-faced. She, she didn't do a lot of facial expressions. She's Russian. Fair. Um, sorry, uh, worst actor yet. Minus one point for her stoop for her first stupid speech, and then we have Ivanova's quote unquote acting. Minus ten points for TV right off the bat for this horrific display. I would rather watch Veer cry. <laughs> oh great! Throw Franklin into the scene. Minus five. <laughs> and before the opening credits, we have a negative 16 TV rating. Oh, and Londo and Jakar are married now, apparently. <laughs> what is this stupid chick saying? The box, the hero of the universe, a real-life He-Man, is a political problem? Let's try rewriting history. 1781. After a second British army was forced to surrender following a naval victory in the Chesapeake, George Washington turned himself into the king for acting against his government. Or, Trotsky's forces triumphed over the imperial guard of Tsar Nicholas II, and then Trotsky turned himself into Lenin for acting against his government. Cuba was shocked when Che Guerra, I know I'm pronouncing it wrong, uh, surrendered to Castro. Or how about Beard turned himself in for acting against the Centauri Republic for murdering the Emperor. Or better yet, no one knows how he got a hold of it, but George Lucas modified the ending of Star Trek Insurrection so that Picard and his whole crew turned themselves into the Federation for mounting an insurrection against their government. The box's speech is saying that he is leaving Earth because EarthGov still sucks. If he stayed and his, quote, presence is a reminder of that which divided, close quote, Earth, then he is also saying that Clark, the Claw's influence, still grips half the planet. History has never happened like that on Earth, and this stupid unfolding that JMS provided this writing should severely embarrass him and disbar him from participating in any more intellectual discussions. Wow. I grind my teeth thinking of the next episode. By the way, that's just the beginning. I told you he was in rare form tonight. Okay. You gave me a hard time about this, but I think he is. Okay. He continues. Clark is replaced by another single leader. He wrote in all caps all okay. of a sudden, so I'm supposed to shout that. Yeah, sure. And so this his regime is still in power, and nothing changes. I half expected the torturer 
to visit the box after Bester leaves. So we still have a corrupt government with their compelling message of power is good. Additionally, is the new president reading from a teleprompter the whole episode? So Earth is much better off with this crazy broad in charge? She threatens to kill the box if he fails to comply with her demands. Shouldn't a reporter ask, um, hey, Mr. Len, where were your rangers when millions of Earth citizens were being slaughtered? <laughs> oh, okay, they were shooting asteroids. Well, thanks for the gravity presence. Close quote. Finally, the two most boring characters ever, Garibaldi and Leash, are having coital relations. Infinite negative points issued. <laughs> I wasn't even going to talk about that part. <laughs> we had skipped it. And then we have the most depressing of all Lanier's quotes of the week. Quote, All love is unrequited. That's an quote. Ivanova quote. No, Lanier says it. He's quoting Ivanova. Yes, but he still <laughs> says it. Bummer, dude. Bummer of an episode. Bummer, dude. Sci-Fi 3... TV, negative zero. Well, don't divide by that. You'll create a black hole. <laughs> Pete, science fiction. Okay, I am right on cue with uh, money bags in this. I gave this a six for science fiction. I did too. Okay, it's... television. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean no, to cut ahead. you off. You're fine. Uh, for television, I give this a six as well. I don't know why, but after I got done watching, I was like... Okay, a little better than average. Uh, I give it a seven. I think that there are a, good, a few good emotional payoffs for the four seasons that we have watched, mm. considering the fact that he's trying to squeeze a yeah. year's worth of content into two episodes. But that's a good point. I, I guess it still feels a little clunky for me, though. I, I did mention I, I liked Ivanova's scene. She did fairly well with that. Um, and the Sheridan stuff, I get what he was trying to do. And, of course, Londo and Jakar, I mean, really, how can you go wrong with those guys? Yeah. Um, so, I, yeah. Uh, what about a uh, P5 rating? P5 rating is 8.90. Moving on to our next episode, Deconstruction of Falling Stars. We see the future of the Babylon 5 universe. 1, 100, 500, 1,000, and 1 million years from the founding of the Interstellar Alliance. Uh, this is, I think, the most, I don't want to say iconic, but the most memorable episode for me. Absolutely, I agree. It, it's the one that I I know I talked to you about before we even started in on this. Like, like oh yeah, what was that one where it was like, we did the like future views of stuff. Like, I remember this one most of all of the rest. I don't know if it's my favorite but it certainly is memorable. Yes. Yeah. Let, let me read from this script book here. Oh, script book, hey. Um, we haven't talked yet, actually, about the renewal of Babylon 5, about them finding out they're going to get a fifth season. We'll talk about that next podcast. Yeah, that's a little weird. I thought we talked about the preceding uh, season in, like, the former season, the way you like to, you know, mix things yep. in. Yep. <laughs> Go on, read your book. 
It's no, no, no. So we're walking in tonight, <laughs> and, and Joey's like, "Now, uh, well, we're, we're, we're not going to cover the the Ivanova stuff, right? Uh, I mean, I'm like, well, what do you mean the Ivanova stuff? Like, you know how you know she's you know not part of season five and spoiler alert. Come yeah. on, Carbonite Man already spoiled that one, so I'm safe. Um, and I'm like." What? what are you talking about? You always do it in this. You know, you always bring it up like the the podcast right before we started to talk about that season. You always do that. And he's like, well, I, I knew if I did, you just like give me more crap about it. <laughs> and not thinking, I don't know why, that I still wouldn't manage to turn it around on you. You went full bore into it. I keep giving you opportunities to disappoint me, Pete, and you keep rising to the top. <laughs> Anyway, I sorry that that was funny for for me. So uh, what you're going to be jumping into the books? Yes, as noted elsewhere, as soon as the fifth season renewal was confirmed, I had to start writing fast because everyone's attention would now be on the fifth season. No one at the studio is really paying attention to year four anymore. I figured this would be a great opportunity to do something a bit on the experimental side because I could just slip it in under the radar. There had already been considerable discussion among fans, academics, and the media about the legacy of Babylon 5. There was a class titled The Philosophy of Babylon 5 being taught at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Oh my... I don't know if I pronounced that correctly. Gosh, seriously? A Babylon 5 academic conference held at the University University College of Ripon in York in the UK, and I had just accepted an invitation to speak about Babylon 5 at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology Media Lab the following May. (laughs) Television critics were assessing the impact of Babylon 5 on the look and story structure of other science fiction series, some of which were starting to implement our approach to multi-year arcs. And elements of Babylon 5 had surfaced in dozens of sermons and master's theses. Theses? Theses. (laughs) Which is only appropriate, both being supplications of perform to elder gods. There was even one master's thesis published through MIT that, instead of deconstructing the show, deconstructed me. (laughs) So, given that there was a lot of talk in the air about the legacy of Babylon 5, it was not unexpected that my thoughts would turn that way as well. Personally, I distrust my own analysis of my work. I think a writer or artist can talk about what went into the work to his or her heart's content, but what came out of those efforts can only truly be evaluated by the audience. Art is what happens in the space between the painting on the wall and the eye that perceives it. Everything else is public relations. So I thought, why not turn the process of deconstruction and analysis away from the show and onto the characters? Why not subject them to the rigors of perception, media, academia, history, and revisionism? Each generation takes the icons of the one before it and either consigns them to the dustbin of history or revises them in ways more conducive to their current intention. Villains become postmodern heroes, eccentrics become saints, and heroes are reconsidered, knocked off their marble horses, or declared simply irrelevant. As Oscar Wilde once noted, biography has lent to death a new kind of terror. Having now created my thesis, the next step was to determine how best to implement that idea structurally. Since the intent was to show our characters are perceived, how our characters are perceived over varying lengths of time, the obvious choice was to break up the story so that each act was farther removed in time from the one preceding it allowing us to track the perception of our characters across hundreds, then thousands, even a million years into the future. Structurally, it was bizarre even by Babylon 5 standards, but I thought it would be worth the effort. In a nod to academia, I entitled it The Deconstruction of Falling Stars. 
Part of the fun in writing this stems from the fact that I hold degrees in clinical psychology, with a minor in literature, and sociology, with a minor in philosophy. And over the years, of five years of Babylon 5, every viewer has paid the price for that background. <laughs> in pursuit of those degrees, I had to spend more time than I like to think about listening to instructors and fellow students doing to the icons of our history exactly what is being done in this episode, reconsidering the past in furtherance of present agendas. Um, when we shot the on-air political discussion designed to emulate Nightline, rather than shooting the experts separately so that we could all suit them, we could insert them during post, we had them all coming at the same time and running three cameras let them all speak at once in the same room so they could argue and overlap each other and give the se sequence of the feel, the, feel, the feel of a real broadcast. The photos of Sheridan as a child growing into a young man are actually photos of Bruce Boxliner, borrowed from his personal collection. The holographic recreation sequence features a nod to the bureaucratization of language used in such books as George Orwell's 1984. One of the more troubling aspects of language in our 21st century is the penchant for removing the emotional context and content of language and replacing it with soft, inoffensive terms designed to minimize the impact. You haven't been fired, your job has been outsourced. George Carlin once followed the softening of language over the course of many years, noting that veterans in World War I suffered from shell shock. In World War II, it became battle fatigue. In Vietnam, it became post-traumatic stress disorder. And today, it's delayed stress syndrome. Noting that if we still called it shell shock, veterans of subsequent conflicts might have got the help for it they needed. By the end of the episode, we see the progression of our characters from living human beings to symbols, with the symbols becoming legend and legend becoming myth. In the course of that progression, we see humanity getting slapped down pretty hard by the Great Burn. A number of fans have asked why I chose to do that. Didn't we just spend the last four years watching our characters save the world? Doesn't this make the whole thing moot? The answer, like the question, is twofold. Yes, our characters saved the world. This time. But the world is entrusted anew to each subsequent generation, which is char charged with both defining that world and preserving it for the next. No one saves the world indefinitely. If we allow ourselves to think otherwise, we can get careless and squander our inheritance. Yes, bad things have happened in the past, are happening now, and will happen in the future. Sheridan created the Alliance, but could do nothing to prevent the Great Burn, because it didn't happen on his watch. What he created, however, is still there on the periphery, assisting with the reconstruction of Earth. We rise, and we fall. What matters, as we see with Brother Alwyn, is that humanity still persists. We fall, but we gradually pick ourselves up off the ground. As long as we continue to do that, there is hope which is the fundamental message of Babylon 5, elucidated here in, the, in dialogue, that no matter how awful things are, we must surrender ourselves to the possibility of hope. That's all. Just a possibility. That's good. I'm glad you read that one. Of, of the ones you've read, I enjoyed that one probably the most. Um, okay. It starts off with what I assume is one of your worst... Uh, nightmares. The surprise party? Yes. Yes. How about you? I, as he was doing it, as they were coming out, I was thinking, oh my gosh, I would hate to be the center of attention right there. Oh, man. That would be terrible for me. Uh, I would just feel like awkward, like go like stock stiff and just. <laughs> hey, I can't wait until you're ready. Everybody. <laughs> uh, um. um 
Yeah, I, it's my first note. Surprise parties suck. I don't know who came up with this idea. I, I think that they need to be retroactively deleted from the time stream. <laughs> it's just a terrible, terrible idea, and I don't know why anyone would ever do such a thing. Yeah, agreed. I like uh, the whole thing about Centauri weddings, though. Oh, yeah, the, uh, that was amusing. The wedding ceremonies are solemn, somber moments of reflection. Also, regret, disagreement, argument, and mutual recrimination. But here's the interesting thing for me. When he says, once you know it can't get any worse, you can relax and enjoy the marriage. Maybe it's just me, but I don't think that is working. I mean, we look at Londo's relationship with his wives. Clearly, this system is not working. Has he, no one in yeah. Centauri culture gone, hmm, <laughs> it's not living up to the ideal that we had set up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, de- definitely Londo's uh, idea of marriage is, uh, I don't know, obviously skewed. We can't use him uh, accurately. Um, so we have pundits arguing about Sheridan. So my favorite thing I wanted this. to punch them all in the nose. <laughs> Every single one of them, huh? Every single one of Interesting. them. Interesting. Uh, I, I watched this and I thought, boy, this reminds me of that Onion News Network show, <laughs> The Back Zone. It was like so dead on. They're both, yeah. they're both, you know, obviously they're both mocking Nightline to an extent or both Parody shows Nightline. like that. I don't know yeah. sp- enough about Nightline to know if it was exactly well, that's, like that's that. Well, that's what Straczynski said. Is it, well, he was trying to go for Nightline here. But, I mean, the, the, the fact zone, the way they, <laughs> the way they mock that, just uh, is brilliant. And it brings a new, a new sense of enjoyment the, to this The funny episode. thing is, is I've seen those change out, you know, Sheridan for some other George w. Bush. political yeah. leader... Uh, you know any political leader that you want to use, and that's basically what you have. One guy who seems to be really just a demon, one who's like middle of the road, and the other one who seems to be like on the saint side of life, you know. <laughs> and so you would I then identify with any one of those three people, and so I, I just don't know what the point of it is. Yeah, what does that bring? You're it, gonna agree it, with as far as I can tell. It just brings ratings. Which just brings um, advertising dollars. So it, it doesn't give you anything. I suppose one could argue and say, no, we're informing the public. We're, we're teaching them something about what's happening. We're prevent, presenting many sides of the issue and allowing you, the viewer, to be able to yeah, select between that. it. The trouble is... I, I guess I'm just too much of a uh, um, cynic. <laughs> well, I was gonna say jerk. I, I see things as right and Bald wrong. Guy. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's right. I thought it was my all, opportunity. To all start of those are accurate. Things. They're accurate. <laughs> <laughs> I, I see things as right and wrong. So I look at these things and I think, okay, clearly the woman was like the only one who's right here. And that other guy, he's clearly wrong. Why should we ever have to listen to, to that guy? It just It's frustrating to the point that I don't really watch that stuff. Yeah, I'm with you. I don't a- anymore. I, I don't. It's not interesting. I don't think it's helpful. Okay. I it's just... Agree. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so we come to find out that there is a hundred years of peace. Yeah. Because of it, which is awesome. I, um, you know, I, it made me... This next piece made me wonder... I'd like to go back and look at some of the news media and the popular culture 
that was around in 1876 and see what kind of deconstruction they were doing a hundred years after the birth of the United States right to you know George Washington I mean I, I know even in our time that it is still somewhat of a fad to take some of those founding father figures and knock them down uh, you know I, I remember when we were teenagers there was the book that came out about Thomas Jefferson right that was you know all the rage and everybody was I remember up that. in arms about it Although it came off with a really good SNL sketch, if I remember correctly. Um, but that, that's side. That's you know, it'd be interesting to go back into our own cultural history a hundred years after, and see, you know, see what happened after a hundred years, or at what point did it really start to become popular to deconstruct the founding fathers in this way? The uh, it, it was frustrating watching that because it looked like the moderator was generally trying to stay neutral and he was just bringing up questions for those two quote unquote experts to then pontificate on in, in various uh, uh, facets. What frustrated me is that everything that you are hearing from them, you should automatically just dismiss as wrong and incorrect. <laughs> I mean, that's what JMS is writing there. He's trying to say, don't listen to these people these people are wrong. Yeah. Uh, because Especially when they use the line, individuals cannot affect change. That is the biggest lie in the world. The individual yes. does not act. They did not do. They allowed others to do. <sighs> oh, <laughs> which would then mean that some other individual acted there, right? No. they, they Or their they... acting allowed somebody else to really do the... Uh, <laughs> so, so frustrating to listen to that because it is such a big lie. You absolutely can affect change. Well, and that's I mean he's using the obviously villainous characters to put that line out there so that we will in our own minds say no, it's wrong. I I can't possibly buy anything these people are saying. Yeah. I can't be allowed to agree with them. It too, well, I I guess I was trying to say to all of our listeners, you can make a difference. Do yeah. not believe that lie that uh, that they proliferated there. Um, okay, so apparently we're introduced to a telepath war yeah. that happens, and something about Sheridan's son, which gets hushed up. You know, yeah. we don't talk about it here. Um, you know, I just, before I want to go back just for a second here. You had mentioned that it seemed to you that the moderator was trying to stay neutral. I don't necessarily agree with that. Towards think, the end when Delenn shows up? I think if you look at the way he phrases the questions, the way he the way he steers the conversation, he's just as guilty of the other two hmm, of making this a deconstruction. I didn't see that, but, but sure. Um, so, they're vilifying Sheridan and Delenn yep. a bit there, and... They're basically saying, ah, come on, prove it, guys. Where is your proof here? And Delenn shows up. <laughs> now, I happened to listen to, I, I just had time Thursday night, and I ended up playing the commentary. Okay. And JMS basically says, pointed out something that I didn't even notice. He's like, yeah, I feel bad about this, but yeah, you guys are all just supposed to agree with the fact that, yeah, Delenn happened to be in the area at the time, and she yeah. showed up just at the right time, and 
Ignore the fact that she's barely able to move, you know, very fast. Um, j- she's there. <laughs> kind of a thing. You didn't notice that, huh? I did. It oh, didn't it, bug me. It drives me nuts every time. I'm like, it's such a great entrance. But it should have. there should have been some kind of warning as soon as the clip started. There should have been some information at least to say, uh, by the way, we are getting some kind of security alert, but we're just going to progress ahead with our program here. Mm, uh, that might work. Sure. I just choose to believe that 100 years in the future, they've developed uh, teleportation. <laughs> and they beamed her in, and then she just walked in. I also tell myself that when I watch this episode. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it doesn't take away from the scene, for me, her showing up, because the way she just comes in and delivers the truth. Yeah. Undiluted, simple, pure, and then walks off. And then the other guy's like, yeah, but we would expect you to say something well, like that. Well, before that happens, we see the girl turn into a groupie all of a sudden. Oh, stay. Tell us there's so much more we can learn from you. And, you know, Delenn's great response is, you don't want to learn. You you know. You just want to speak. Yeah. It reminds me of, uh, I don't know if you ever saw the Jackie Chan and Jet Li movie, The Forbidden Kingdom. Uh, yes, it, I did. It was, it was pretty good. Entertaining. Yeah. Uh, I like when Jackie Chan is trying to teach the main character. He's trying to teach him kung fu, and the guy's always like, "Oh yeah, I remember this from this Bruce Lee movie," you know. And Jackie Chan makes this comment to him about, "Your cup is f- too full. I can't add anything to it because your cup is full already. You need to empty your cup." And and I I think that we're seeing a little bit of that here. You know, Delin is telling these people, "You've already made your decision. You, you've already decided." how you're going to interpret the events of history, nothing I could tell you is ever going to change that. Well, I, uh, I kind of saw a, a, a slight uh, modification to that in that she, Delenn is telling that woman, look, you just want to talk for the sake of hearing yourself talk. You're not providing any amount of substance value. Yeah. and value to this discussion at all. You just want to talk because that's apparently what you do. <laughs> and nothing good will ever come of you. Um, so I love the look as she, this 150-year-old woman, stares down each one of them. And they look down in shame. Yes, they cower away from her. Uh, that was a fun Yeah, fun when, when that idiot starts, he's like, well, of course we'd expect you to say that. The look that she gives him, I just wanted to say, really? <laughs> You're going to come at me with that? <laughs> Good stuff, though. Uh, 500 years in the future. We have the George Orwell... Um, Reality, yeah. Yes. Which, Good facts and true facts. Quote, uh, we need to correct... Uh, uh, we need correct info speak to reflect current political thought. Oh, that bugs me so much. <laughs> I've mentioned to you, maybe I've, I think I've said it on the podcast, I hated 1984. You hated it? I absolutely hate that book. Because of the way that it ends. It's, but it's a warning. It's it, useful for that. The guy gives up. <laughs> yes, he does. You're right. And that alert, just <laughs> absolutely frustrates me. Uh, I, I just... Mm, it I, drives me nuts. I like it because I look at it as a cautionary tale. It's... Oh, no. You no, know, no thank you. I would punch George Orwell in the nose. Here, here is... Here is what... 
you know, if we let things go, if we were to all to just sit back and let them go, they would head in this direction to the point where even the people who potentially would want to fight the system don't see a way to continue anymore. We have to stop it before it gets that far. Mm. But, uh, there, so there's something that happens in this episode which I understand what Straczynski is trying to do, but I think he sabotaged himself here. He's trying to redeem the character of Garibaldi. Uh, by, you know... Uh, I didn't get that at all. So all of the other characters are being made to do these horrific things. These, you know, direct... 180s of their true personalities. For example, the scene, the speech that Sheridan delivers to those aliens before they're shot. Which, by the way, uh, Bruce Boxleitner loved being able to oh, do that. Man, that was chilling stuff, wasn't it? Franklin? He, he, he studied uh, some of Hitler's stuff. Oh, yeah? Yes. So when he's giving the speeches and marching up and down the rows of men, he's, uh, Straczynski said he was channeling Hitler. I, I think it's clear. I, um, Franklin, I don't think, executed the scene quite as well. Uh, but, you know, and then what we see is as they're all frozen, Garibaldi starts to talk to the guy and says, you know, basically he has the conversation. He says, oh, I've been recording this conversation and I've just broadcast it to everybody. And the, the reason that he's supposed to be able to do this is because he's so good with systems. And I, go, I, I was going to go look up the episode title, but then I realized I don't care that much to go look at the episode title. But there's the episode where they're trying to reboot the Babylon 5 computers. Right. After that episode, we're supposed to buy that Garibaldi is so good with systems that as a hologram, he can reprogram the system that is running him on the fly. Uh, I understand what he's trying to do. It's, you know, Garibaldi is saying, rest easy, friends. You know, it's Garibaldi redeeming, trying to redeem himself a little bit for the mistakes that he made during season four. If we're going to have trouble with this episode, for me, it's long before that when they bother to to re uh, to inform them. No, not oh. to inform them. To set them up based off of what their personality would have been back then. We're going to figure out a way to accurately get them figured out programmatically so we could have them here, but then we're going to reprogram them. What's the point of setting them up and getting their true personalities in there if all you want is some vid of them doing horrible things? You clearly have the technology to just create these videos of these holograms doing these terrible things. Why do you need the conscience behind them? Oh, I see your point. It, it makes for a terrible episode here, but it, it just, logically, it doesn't make sense. So that's why I just divorce myself from it and try not to look at it too closely. Okay. Because I really, really like this episode. I do too. And I don't want to spend too much time... Deconstructing it. Tearing it down. <laughs> okay. Anyway, uh, Garibaldi manages to help start the Great Burn. Yeah. Really. I mean, he's, yeah. the, he's the, the guy that does it. Um, okay, so now we have a thousand years into the future. Uh, it's after the Great Burn. Um, so, you know, it's 500 years after Post what burn. we've just seen. And we are seeing this guy by the name of Brother Alwyn. Which, by the way... I love that actor. Yeah, he did a great job. Aside from doing a good job in that scene, 
I've always enjoyed whatever I've seen him in. I, I my most him. my most favorite is from Total Recall. Okay. Do you, you saw that movie? I saw the movie once, but I don't remember it particularly well. At one point, they send in that guy to Arnold Schwarzenegger, and he's supposed to try and convince Arnold Schwarzenegger, "Look, you're actually in a machine back on Earth. This is a horrible thing that's just gone wrong. You're." You need to oh, take... Oh, like an allergic reaction. It's that guy? Yeah. And he's like, here, take this pill. This is a psychological you know, way of saying, hey, I want to step out and then you'll be able to come out. And then Schwarzenegger looks at him. He's like, he almost believes him. And then he sees a trickle of sweat go down the guy's face. And then he just shoots him like right in the, <laughs> the head. It's a pretty funny scene. Anyway, I, I, I like that actor. Yeah, I, I just think I'm he's looking, good. I'm looking at here at his IMDb page. I don't think I've seen hardly any of this stuff. I guess he was on Deep Space Nine. Oh, okay. Yeah, maybe he was. Uh, the character that he played there was. Oh, he was also. I think he did um, Stargate, didn't he? No, he did not. Oh, I must be thinking of somebody else then. Uh, on Deep Space Nine, he was Rosca Karn. No. Nah. Okay. Not familiar to me, anyway. Um, are you sure that he was in the... Oh, yeah, Total Recall, Dr. Edgemar. Okay. Yep. Okay. No, I, I don't recognize most... Oh, he was in Tango and Cash. <laughs> I love that movie. It's a great movie. <laughs> oh, man, I should have realized your taste in <laughs> things uh, after finding that out. It... it uh, <laughs> it's great comedy. That's all I'll say about it. But it's, so it's interesting. 500 years post-burn, we're kind of in a dark age. It seems kind of that way, yes. With Roman Catholic monks running around. And, and apparently something that came out of the Roman Catholic monk system, the rangers see value in it enough to like encourage it and to guide humanity back using that as part of their guidance system. Oh, really? I just assumed that that was a convenient cover. Okay. You know, someone who... You get into this group of people who seem to be in charge of the records. And, you know, okay, well, let's start to reset up history and reintroduce things. Can you help us find some gasoline? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, what's interesting is the conversation that... Brother Alwyn has with Brother Michael. Yeah. As Brother Michael is having a bit of crisis of faith. He's saying, ah, does this stuff really even happen? And, you know, he brings out this book that he's been transcribing and illustrating. And he shows pictures of Lorien. And he's like, oh, and we have this uh, this guy Sheridan who who died and came back and led us to this great path. And I think... Did they just rewrite the story of Jesus? <laughs> well, the Sher- hero's journey. Sheridan becomes the Messiah yeah. who saves them all. Um, anyway, he's having this this difficulty because thinking, is all of this even real? It talks about us being able to get to the stars. The stars have the answer, but we're never going to get there. We are nowhere near getting there. And it's clear he's got this, the, the trouble with youth is impatience. He does not understand most of the really great journeys in life are going to be the longest and most difficult sure. ones you take. Yeah. Um, and Brother Alwyn helps to, to help him see, I think, a little bit the idea that, look, 
Faith sustains when reason fails. And you have to use both faith and reason together. You cannot take one or the other. And I think uh, I may get the quote wrong, but he says, uh, you get farther with both of them. They're the shoes on your feet. Right. Yes. You'll get you further with both of them than you will with just one. Just one. Right. Um, and trying to help him realize, look, give it some time. You need to exercise your faith a little bit more, even just to hope at this point that it yeah. that it's real. Um, I, I, from a religious person's standpoint, I really enjoy that. And I thought that JMS treated that aspect of religion very well. Especially considering what we know about his own personal thoughts on the matter. Correct. It, it was it was very fascinating to me. And it's why I, you know, I tell people, you know, that this is a that there is a strong religious theme to Babylon 5, even though Straczynski himself is not a particularly religious man in his own words. Yeah. So, sorry, uh, we come to find out that brother Alwyn is actually a, a ranger. Uh, he undercover. Yeah, he's there. He's helping to rebuild things, um, and he, you know, is reporting his log back there. A question I had was: Okay, the Great Burn happens on Earth. We we almost decimate everybody living on Earth. What about the people on Mars? We don't know. D- does Mars just say, "Oh, you burned up"? Oh well, sorry. Like in my mind. I, I don't understand where Mars has the ability to start to produce their own food. I think that Mars needs someone well, to bring them food. Well, they need interstellar they? trade, but not necessarily with the planet Earth. Hmm, interesting. So I've always chosen to believe that all the other Earth colonies are being held... The rangers are telling them, hey, look, you know, we're, we're the police force here. We need to let Earth come along at its own, play, own pace. Please don't intervene in what's going on here. Kind of a prime directive kind of shield okay. around Earth. Okay. All right. Enforced by the Rangers. Okay. Um, so those... I, I enjoyed those stories there. We skip ahead to one million years into the future. And humans apparently have become ascended beings. We look like Vorlons. We do seem to. And we seem to be wandering around in their encounter suits. Well, the encounter suits are significantly different. Yeah, they, they have a humanoid shape now instead of the weird octopusy looking shape. That... <laughs> but the interesting thing to me is that inside of a million years, our sun is starting to go nova. It is way ahead of schedule. It, it does like, seem that way. Like billions of years ahead of schedule. And, yeah. and there's no explanation ever within the context of the series why it's only a million years and our sun's going nova. I, I wonder if it's because of this idea that, okay, look, we've managed to, we've reached our apex here, and you know what, it's time to shut things down here. Maybe they put the sun to go well, so that's nova. What, that's what I was going to say is, I'm wondering if humanity is about to move beyond the rim, and we are destroying our tracks before we leave, so to speak. Hmm. Uh, who and what, what did I hear... Somebody said that you wouldn't get to go back to the Vorlon homeworld for a million years. Is that said anywhere within the the mythos of Babylon 5? Not that I know of. Like they wouldn't be allowed back there for a million years. 
I, I don't remember that quote. Yeah. Maybe it was in the the Straczynski commentary? Um, commentary that he mentioned something like that. Anyway, we I wrote down this last thing here. Um, oh, oh, it was Delenn and Sheridan. We finally closed back up on them, and basically the the feeling and sense that we're supposed to get from their conversation is we did things because they were right we're not doing them to be remembered and I wish to hell and you know what I'm sorry I said it I wish to hell that we could start to get leaders who genuinely believed in believe that and practice that and got past this idea of oh I want to get in here to get some power and to start to do whatever I want because uh, I want to cause kickbacks or I want to help start making myself more powerful and you know get more money. I wish that more politicians would get into this with this in mind. And maybe they aren't always right and I, I guess it's kind of mean of me to, to say that all politicians are greedy, <laughs> horrible people because I'm sure that there are some people out there who are doing this for, you know, because they believe it's right. But I wish that we could think more about, you know, not trying to preserve some legacy and set ourselves up as some grandiose thing, but to do something because it's the right thing to do. Even if it's hard, even if it's unpleasant, but because it is right. Yeah. Anyway, that's all I had to say. Okay. Anything else? No. Let's go to listener comments. All right. Are you sitting down for this? Yes. Should I stand up? <laughs> yes. Uh, stand up when I read Brainy Smurf's emails, would you please? Uh, he starts off, The deconstruction of JMS. <laughs> okay. The vignette with the monks is okay. And at least JMS is trying an unconventional format. And I love the concept, examining the creation of legend. This is what I feel sci-fi is most suited for. Sci-fi is least suited for insulting the world of education. Those are the nice things about this episode. As JMS says himself in the commentary, he hates academics. He says that since he went to college for eight years, then he can comment on the entire field of academia. No, seriously, he literally says that. <laughs> JMS did you know that other fields of study exist besides clinical and social psychology? You have clearly never studied religion extensively, since there is not a single unique religious perspective in the series, except for the question, do puppets go to heaven? Maybe you are still regretting how you got conned slash suckered into joining a cult, but to say that, quote, Academics devalue the role of the hero by, by dissecting history, close quote, displays profound ignorance. Just because you hated your professors for not complimenting you enough does not mean that you should, we should all drop out of school. In the commentary, JMS says that academics just, quote, don't get it. No, JMS. Uh, no, JMS does not get that his writing hubris is out of control. Why? Why, JMS? Why force yourself to write two entire seasons as your health and writing skills deteriorate? 
He already told us why via Londo. JMS is afraid of what someone else would do in his place. It's okay, JMS. We still like you, but you are not as clever as the Braination previously thought you were. So, it is monks, only monks, that preserve knowledge throughout history? Was Thomas Aquinas a monk or an academic? Or both? And how in the world is JMS an atheist? He is saying the thing about the shoes of science and religion. But atheists do not like religion. They can't. Which brings me to a real point. I don't believe in atheism. Mostly because it ends with an ism. I have studied atheism extensively. And no one has said anything creative in the field of atheism since Nietzsche. As a parallel of the madman demonstrates, atheists are simply reactionary to the morality of theists. That is all. It is purely speculation to claim the source behind a religion is false and then to pro propose nothingness as an alternative. Hey, JMS. Diogenes is still swinging his lantern, wondering where you have gone. And so, in a million years, humans will be just like the Vorlon, killing much more efficiently whole planets at a time. A little too dystopian for me. Sci-Fi 6, TV 1. Wow. Yeah. Definitely took no, the gloves off there. I, I have to say that, I, admittedly, I have not gone to college. I have a very limited exposure to the world of academia. But the exposure that I have had in broad strokes falls in line with what JNS depicts here. So I don't think it's completely fair to say that he's got it completely wrong. There are certainly figures within academia that do this. We've seen it. Agreed. It happens. I will absolutely agree with that. Now, whether or not all academics, I, I, you know, I wouldn't say all academics do that any more than I would say, you know, all Christians are nice people. <laughs> you know, great, great it, comment. It's it's a broad stroke. It's a stereotype. I, I think we are all supposed to understand that and 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 accept that and, and operate under those terms. Yeah. Uh, the the interesting thing is, uh, having listened to the commentary, the commentary as well. I know he's right. I know he's quoting exactly what JMS was saying. Because when I was listening to the commentary, I was like, wow, what a horrible experience you must have had in school. Because I remember my, my schooling experience being incredibly broadening. And I learned so many wonderful things because of it. Um, it he's... You, you learned why I don't like pizza after a certain number of times of eating. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Diminishing marginal utility. Um, That's the one thing when I asked you when we were first becoming friends, I said, what did you get out of college? You said diminishing marginal utility and explained it with the pizza example. <laughs> uh, have I explained I, I, that on the podcast to people I don't before? Think, I don't think you have. All You'll right. have to do it sometime. I, I think if you were to sit down, either one of you were to sit down with Jay Michael Straczynski and have a conversation, he would say, no, I'm not saying all academics are necessarily like this. I'm saying that this is the tendency of academia over time is to start to you know, deconstruct our, our yeah, figures I, of the past. And I understand what he's doing in this episode. He's really got about seven minutes to portray a portion of what 
can happen to our heroes. Right. And I agree with what he was saying. You absolutely would get people that would sit around doing exactly what they were doing. The difficulty and where I think Brainy Smurf is right to attack him is in the commentary when he talks about how much he despises academics and academia. And, and I, I, can, I can believe that. I'm just saying, yeah. I think if you took it beyond that and turned it into a conversation instead of him on a soapbox expounding a particular point of view, that you could you would probably discover, yeah, he's actually it, more rational about it than uh, he Agreed. It, 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 I absolutely agreed with that. But unfortunately, that's clearly not an option. We're only yeah. left with what he did put out. He's not dead out. yet, Pete. We could have this conversation with him. <laughs> we just need a few thousand more listeners to get him uh, his attention. Well, you refused to tweet to him even the most <laughs> simplest of questions. Hi, sir. Could you clarify this? I just assume that's your tweet voice, by the way. <laughs> Seems fitting. It does kind of tweet, doesn't it? Uh, okay, let's see here. Um, money bags. Money bags. He says, okay, some good foreshadowing. We find that not Ivanova is in command of Babylon 5, that Babylon 5 is destroyed, and that Sheridan died under mysterious circumstances. But so much of this episode is just hokey. Delenn just sneaks onto the news show? <laughs> Garibaldi's hologram can hack computers? Somewhere a software engineer is crying. <laughs> oh, wait, that's me. Uh, and we see that after the great burn, I roll, the other races decided to do nothing? No distress calls went out? No interplanetary aid? No Red Cross? Nah, we'll just leave Earth to burn and gradually rebuild it using monks. <laughs> Makes perfect sense. We'll just let one of our allies regress back to the Dark Ages. Literally. I wonder how many people died of preventable diseases during the time after the Great Burn. This episode could have set up the Telepath War. JMS blatantly ignores the rule of Chekhov's gun. Uh, a couple of episodes, Sheridan says a war is coming between telepaths and non-telepaths. And then we don't see it. We get tantalizing hints, but no payoff. The telepath war should have been the focus of Season 5, along with the Interplanetary Alliance. TV 5, Sci-Fi 6. Um, but you kind of answered the, the telepath war stuff. Yeah. He He's saving still, that. Yeah, he hopes to tell it in full someday. Um, I've seen this before, this... Chekhov's uh, gun. Chekhov's gun. What, can you explain yeah, that? Yeah, I've actually discussed it on the podcast before. Have you? It, it was the playwriter. I can't remember his first name now, but famous playwriter, Chekhov. Uh, the Dollhouse, I think, is probably his most famous play. But he, he, had a, he has a quote that says, If there is a gun hanging on the wall in Act 1, Scene 1, then by Act 1, Scene 3, or Act 3, Scene 1, someone ha had better have used that gun in the, in the scene. It better, it better have been fired. Or you have wasted a plot device. You, you've introduced something to the audience for no good reason. Okay. Agreed. Uh, I, I would really, really agree with that. I, I think Lost is a great example of a bunch of writers who did not understand the principles of Chekhov's gun. Uh, agreed. Agreed. 
um, or were too busy <laughs> scrambling to try and figure out what was supposedly going to happen in this story. Um, anyway, that's that's lost. That's not uh, Babylon Five. Um, let's see here. I was going to talk about the the Great Burn. Okay, I get from our perspective. Ah, look, we should try and save people. That's a good, noble thing, right? Mm, but it seems like Earth needs to burn. Maybe we need to do a purging to get rid of the really, really bad people that have assumed control of this and start afresh. And we'll start off with a good basis, you know, with the whole Rangers thing. I'm not saying it's right, not saying it's wrong. But I'm just saying maybe that's why they let him burn. Oh, okay. You're not saying it's right. I thought you were saying maybe we do need to. I was going to say, I, was thinking, I hope you never get power. <laughs> I was, we we I, need a purge. <laughs> I, was, I was taking what uh, the Rangers gotcha. would be saying gotcha. in that regard. Okay, okay Joey, uh, science fiction. Ten. I think this is awesome. You have the you know the, this perception or this way to show the way perception of characters evolves over time. It's just brilliant. I give it a ten. You know, after I got done watching this, I wrote down ten. I then read the emails, and I was starting to rethink. Ah, you know, am I just remembering this because, like, I happen to remember it? It was the most memorable <laughs> episode, so I just feel good about it. But in talking about it here, and despite some of the flaws that it has, um, I think that this is still a 10. Because I don't see other sci-fi shows doing what this did, which is showing a major uh, arc in the most broad sense of that term, arc, uh, that covers a huge scope within the science fiction world to show what the consequences of their choices ended up being yeah. and how some of those things played out in what is clearly to be seen by that guy who, you know, floats off. The in... guy who looks like you? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a little bit. Every time I see that guy, I'm like, it's Pete! Pete, you look that long five! <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you know, it, it, they clearly see that as a turning point, a fundamental turning point to the race of humanity that you know eventually got them to that yeah. that point where they are ascended beings. Now we have no idea what happens to the Narn, the Centauri, the Pachmarov, any of the other <laughs> game. Um, but Earthers, humans, which is what we are, clearly this is an important thing and I like the way that that happens and you just don't see it and I thought it was done well. Okay. Uh, for television, I give this one a seven. I think it's I think it's really enjoyable. I think that the um, the the little snippet views into the different periods are short enough to to remain entertaining for that little slice of time, without us having to invest a whole lot in that particular mindset or time period. Okay, uh, uh, we're guilty of deconstructing this episode uh, by this uh, conversation. I wanted to give this a six. I originally wrote six. I'm going to bump this down to a five. The reason is is not because I don't like what Delenn does and that I don't like what brother the, the actor who plays Brother Alwyn and that whole scenes, but I can't ignore the Garibaldi stuff. I can't ignore um, the, uh, let's see here, the pundits. I, the, they just, 
They're supposed to irritate them. <sighs> anyway, th- there's too many other things that make okay. us trip over this episode that I'm only going to give it a five. Okay. The uh, P5 rating is 8.50. Moving on to season wrap-up. Joey. Yes. Um, general thoughts for season four. This is one of my favorite seasons of anything in television ever. Really? Yeah. Okay. Okay. I can't say that. I, I'm uh, Obviously, I couldn't say that for all of television, um, since Star Trek TNG season five is pretty freaking awesome. I didn't say it is... My favorite. I said it's one of my favorites. Uh, you know, if I were to list maybe the top five. Are you hearing that, everyone? He's backing off of that definitive statement he had. I, I haven't ever sat down and actually tried to order them, <laughs> which I'm thinking we will have to do at some point as part of this podcast. Maybe we will, but that seems really hard, so maybe we won't. <laughs> but this is definitely up there for me. Okay. Um, I can't decide between three or four. Of Babylon 5. Okay. Like, which I like more. Clearly, a lot of action in Season 4, which, hey, that's always getting two thumbs up for me. Um, but uh, overall, I it was tough that we took such a long break in between... The start of the season? Yeah, I mean, we had some breaks in there that really kind of screwed Broke with my memory... Of these episodes, and <laughs> you have the worst short-term memory ever. <laughs> I do. I, I do. Agreed. Um, okay, let's cover. Okay, um, listener comments. Listener uh, comments here. We'll we'll start off with uh, money bags. He says, "Hey guys, well that about wraps it up for Babylon Five. We've asked President Clark, defeated the shadows. Time to rid right off into the sunset and wait." There's another season coming? <laughs> well, that's fine. I can't wait to see the telepath war. Wait, there's no telepath war? Well, that's fine. At least we get to see Ivanova in charge of Babylon 5. <laughs> <laughs> wait, Claudia Christian is leaving the show? Well, I'm sure they'll find a good replacement. <laughs> oh. Wait, the, re- <laughs> the replacement is annoying? <laughs> Complains about Babylon 5 in her very first scene? Well, I'm sure... Nope. I've got nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't like Lockley, huh? Okay. I don't remember her well enough to know. She's not my favorite, but I I think that was a little bit mean. (laughs) Uh, He says, season four wrap-up. Best villain, Cartagia. A close second for the interrogator in Intersections in Real Time. Uh, worst villain slash worst character? Tie between Garibaldi and William Edgars. <laughs> worst episode? The Exercise of Vital Powers. Really? Okay. Yeah. Uh, best episode? Endgame. Close second for Intersections in Real Time. Hour of the Wolf was also great. What? <laughs> I'm just gonna start doing that every time I see it. It's woof. You realize you make yourself sound like an idiot in the process of picking on me. I'm not picking on you, but I like your reaction. I just do. Funniest moment. Woo hoo. Okay. Favorite main character, Marcus. Favorite guest character, Cartagia. Hot Chick Award? 
the Russian president of Earth in Rising Star. Really? President Lutinko? I guess. <sighs> okay, not on my list. I'll say that much. <laughs> I wouldn't call her. I wouldn't, you know, make the sounds you just made there. But I wouldn't necessarily pick her as the hot chick. I, I, for, for my taste, she's one of the least attractive women to appear on Babylon 5. <laughs> okay. Worst moment. Tie between uh, the League of Non-Aligned Worlds ambassadors think they are surrounded by invisible enemies. <laughs> oh, I should have put that as my funniest moment. <laughs> and any scene in which Garibaldi and Edgars discuss politics. Best moment, Morden's death. Mm. Ivanova's death incarnate speech gets an honorable mention, even though Claudia Christian's delivery was subpar. So, that's a good list. I, I liked his yeah. list. Um, okay, uh, Brainy Smurf. His uh, bit part goes to Zathras. Okay. Sorry, Zathras. 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 Um, <laughs> Slight difference. Favorite character, Cartagia. He makes ex-President Clark look like ex-President Carter. President Carter, wow. Are you bringing in poor Jimmy Carter on this? But I guess maybe he's saying the point of, look, Cartagia was so bad it makes President Car Clark look like, oh, yeah, he's not that bad, it's just like Carter. It's just Carter, yeah. Um, most for a second, I really thought that he was saying, "Wow, President Carter was a really terrible person." <laughs> I was like, "No, President Carter was like the nicest guy around from everything I know about him." <laughs> okay, my mistake. Sorry, Brainy Spur. Uh, most hated, Kosh slash Garibaldi <laughs> slash every Minbari but Lanier. Wow. Most boring character. No, no, no love for Nirun, huh? Yeah, I guess not. Or Delenn. Yeah. Well, I, I can get... He know, he thinks that Delenn is in the Vorlon's pocket, so obviously he's... <laughs> Most boring character ever? A tie between Lise and President Clark the Claw. Okay. Biggest, where the hell did that guy go? Brother Theo. Huh. Apparently he missed Theo. Villain, Londo. With honorable mention to Martian Alfred. Not sure I'd be putting Londo in the villain category At anymore. At this point, yeah. Not for this season, anyway. Uh, hot Chick goes to Hot Lips Marsquake. As he already good. mentioned. Uh, funniest moment, the entrance of Strobe Light Skeletor Drock Dude. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good one. Best good episode, one. Falling Towards Apotheosis. Worst episode, the entire Minbari Civil War, followed closely by the entire Mars storyline. Wasn't aware you got to do that. It was I, supposed yeah. to be one episode there, but well, whatever. Uh, best character arc, the box from dead uh, from dead to president. Such good acting as well. Worst character walkabout, still Franklin. Just take him one more jab of Franklin in the walkabout. Best character moment. Jakar when he is wearing the funky, funky eye patch. Best Pete moment. Emo kid impersonation. 
Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember what I did I, I, that I'm for. So, I'm, I'm going to go back now it. and compare them and see how accurate you are. See if you were internally consistent. <laughs> Best Joey moment. The commentary on Ducat's member. We're just, I think that was when we got uh, rebuked by the Bobs for going a little overboard. Okay. And we'll agree with that. Um, you guys are doing a great job. Keep it up and thank you. Or in Chinese, xie xie. I think that's how it's pronounced. Okay. I think I know, I think I know how to pronounce that one. From watching Firefly? Uh, no. What? Uh, I, knew a, I knew a girl uh, oh, who okay. was from Taiwan and she spoke Chinese. Okay. They said that in Firefly as well. So. They could have. It's possible. Okay, what are we doing here? Favorite extra, Favorite extra and bit part? Mr. Smith. I'm going to give it to Lorianne. I love the character, mm. I love the concept, and I love Wayne Alexander. You do seem to have a great abundance of love for Wayne Alexander. <laughs> I'll, I'll say it that way. Um, mine is going to be the interrogator, mm. as play, portrayed by Bruce Gray. Good choice. I really enjoyed how he acted in that whole thing. Believed him from start to finish. He creeped me out. He did everything he needed to. It was good. Yeah. Okay, Pete, your most hated character. Uh, hands down, it has got to be Edgar's. Wow, okay. I, I just could not stand that guy. He was dreadful. And I didn't think he was particularly well acted. It looked like they went out and got some grandpa <laughs> who, oh, I'm bored, and turned him into Hitler. Or, not Hitler, uh, who was the other guy? Who, uh, Goebbels. Goebbels or uh, Himmler. That, you know, just did these atrocious, horrible things to people experimenting on them. Yeah, they, they turned Grandpa into that. <laughs> and so I just really could not stand Edgar's. Okay. Uh, I have a tie between number one and Lise. <laughs> number one. Didn't like her, huh? Did not care for her. So, did you feel like she was just too over the top or what? I felt like the whole character and the, the acting job both were just miserable. The thing with Lisa is I just couldn't ever really seem to get a sense of her. And it's, so by that it meant she isn't anything important that I ever need to bother to pay attention My to. My problem with her is that we are supposed to be happy that she and Garibaldi end up together. Oh, okay. Whereas it was basically... I'm going to pull out the word adultery. Maybe it's a bit unfair. But she was clearly, in her mind at least... Lusting Un after. Unfaithful to her yeah. husband while he was still alive. And so the fact that they end up together just makes me kind of sick and I, and I hate it. I hate that we're supposed to look at that as this great romantic victory for these two star-crossed lovers when they brought it on themselves multiple times. Yeah, and she apparently was a little unfaithful uh, in spirit, em em emotionally yeah. okay. with, uh, with her husband. Um, okay, where is who did you choose for your favorite villain? Oh, Cartagia. I, I thought that was easy. Uh, I think an honorable mention needs to go to Shakiri. <laughs> yeah. he, he was a pretty good villain too, but yeah. Cartagia is just brilliant, acted and, and portrayed incredibly well. Interesting, because uh, that is not who I went with. I went with Lorian as favorite <laughs> villain. 
the way that he was pulling those puppet strings throughout the entire universe so wrong. To, to get to get the shadow to start doing this. I mean, he clearly was in league with them, teaching them how to do these things. You couldn't be more wrong if you were saying that just to irritate me. <laughs> No, you 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 said everything perfectly. Cartagena is the perfect villain throughout this entire season. His entire arc, which we all admittedly we want to see more of Cartagena because of how dreadful of a person yeah. that character is supposed to be, and the actor that they get to do it, he nailed it. Yeah, absolutely. he nailed it. And so Cartagena, hands down, worst villain. Okay, Pete Hotchick. Okay, um, again, I've found Babylon 5 to (laughs) be incredibly deficient in hot chick budget, as my friend John Madsen likes to to call it. Um, I guess I'm going to give it to that one guy who uh, Brainy Smurf called the, uh, uh, what did he call her, Hot Lips Marsquake. (laughs) Not wild about that name, but uh, I guess she was the most attractive. I'm going to go with the Lynn in the black dress. Oh, all right. I know she doesn't do it for you, but she does it for me. Okay, all right. Uh, your funniest moment. Uh, I'm going to give an honorable mention to uh, Ivanova having to deliver the line, nothing happened today in Sector 83 by 9 by 12. And like that whole, the way Sheridan sets that thing up. Ugh. Like the, the rest of it was kind of over the, over the top, but I like the interaction between those two characters and, that, and then her having to deliver that. I, I, I just can't take that entire episode serious. <laughs> You're not supposed to. That's why it's funniest moment. Oh. Uh, but I am giving the win to Zathras. Zathras. Slight difference in pronunciation. Oh my gosh. <laughs> You're going to be kidding me. I laugh my head off every time. Oh man. <laughs> There's ten of us all named Zathras. Slight difference. <laughs> Zathras always tells Zathras, but Zathras not listen to Zathras. Oh. Good heavens. Um, okay, my funniest moment, uh, I think clearly has to be Marcus dying. <laughs> See? Got you laughing. Right? Clearly. Okay, fair. No, I, I'm only kidding on that. That, that was a, my joke entry. Um, I, I couldn't really think of something funny. And I've gotten the sense that Babylon 5 just doesn't know how to be funny a lot. And, I mean, clearly West Wing hilariously over-the-top funny. Yeah. Uh, even Next Generation was funnier than this. It's and not, it, it's not it's your It's frustrating humor. because I, I'm supposed to be looking for this funniest moment, but Babylon 5 is really a serious show about serious things. Yeah. And I wish that they would stop trying to be funny. Okay. It, uh, well, I should say, for my personal taste... I would have enjoyed something that didn't try to be funny and gimmicky in places. I would have just appreciated it more. Okay. But uh, because we need to choose something, I'm going to steal from uh, Brainy Smurf when he says, The entrance of Strobe Light Skeletor drunk. <laughs> that was pretty funny. <laughs> when I look back on it, I just think, That does look goofy, and I do laugh. It's not intended for us to laugh at that, but I laugh. <laughs> what are, you, what are we going to say? Uh, uh, hate it. Me. I'm up next, right? No, I'm up next. Wait. No. 
most hated episode. Oh, yep. You're right. Pete. <laughs> Your five most hated episodes. For some reason, I kept crossing down onto the favorite five. Even though there's quite a bit of white space in between the two yeah, lines. Yeah, we're not ready for our fave five yet, brother. Okay, hated episode. Um, honorable mention goes to Atonement, but uh, it's not on the list. Number five is going to go to Illusion of Truth. Okay. Um, number four goes to Rumors, Bargains, and Lies. Uh, that was the one... Uh, oh, crap, I don't remember them well enough. That's the... Uh, they're on the ship in the, the poison gas, the Minbari. Right, right. Okay, thank you. Number three is Conflicts of Interest, uh, which is where um, Garibaldi sort of becomes... Yeah, so he joins the biker biker gang. Yeah, it just was goofy (laughs) on so many different levels. Uh, Number two is going to be Exercise of Vital Powers. Okay. (laughs) Major bomb, in my opinion, because, I mean, that's so Edgar's... Heavy. heavy, yeah. And then we have Lita, who I just don't really care for. I mean, I don't hate Lita, but I just... Uh, I, so what? Don't care. Yeah. Uh, and then my number one is going to be Racing Mars. Even though I kind of like Captain Jack, and I like what he does at the end, I think it's honorable. You know, he, he chases off into the tube and just commit suicide because he doesn't have any other choice anymore and he tried he did everything that he possibly could have which is what I want those dang cowardice earthers to stand up and do to President (laughs) Clark he did everything that he could there but still what a stinker of an episode that was so dreadful double thumbs down Joey, what do you? You're hated. Uh, our lists are almost exactly the same. There's just some ordering differences. Oh yeah, it's got the same got the same entries. Uh, I give number five to rumors, rumors, bargains, and lies. Okay. Because I do think Lanier kind of saves that episode a little bit. The, the performance that we get out of Bill Mooney in that episode yeah. redeemed it just a little. That, that's I mean, it's still a pretty awful episode, but I, I want to give him a little bit of credit for the yeah. performance he turned in there. Yeah, you're not wrong there. Uh, number four is conflicts of interest. Again, Garibaldi joining a biker gang. It was not my favorite moment of Babylon 5. I like that you came up with that. <laughs> because it, when I first watched it, I thought, oh, that's a little weird. They're just hovering around. And yeah, they are kind of all dressed in black. And it kind of had the look of leather yeah. to it. And when you said that, you know, it's a biker gang, I thought, son of a gun. <laughs> it is a biker gang. <laughs> So, um, good on you, sir. I'm giving number three to the illusion of truth. The whole idea that anybody would ever think that they were going to get an honest interview out of ISN at this point oh. was just ridiculous. It's just, just terrible. Uh, number two, the exercise of vital powers. I have to say, I think uh, J. Michael Straczynski had lost track of his lines of excellence <laughs> for that particular episode. And number one to Mars. Racing Mars. I can't believe we're back on Mars. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Racing Mars. Horrible, awful episode. Uh, it, almost Attilio quality. <laughs> <laughs> That's a true insult right there. Uh, okay, let's have you come in and talk about your favorite. Your fave five. Uh, I have two honorable mentions just because I had to narrow it down to five, but I ended up with 
my my number five, I had a three way tie, so I just I forced a, a decision, but I still feel like I want to give honorable mention to both No Surrender, No Retreat, and Between the Darkness and the Light. I think those are both pretty good episodes. Okay, uh, but number five is going to go to Endgame. Okay, um, I think this is a a really cool science fiction episode. I think this is good good stuff. Good battles. Uh, number four, Falling Towards Apotheosis. My favorite thing about this episode is when we see Cartagia's, the full depth of Cartagia's madness. This is when he tells us, oh, I know the Vorlons are coming to destroy the planet. Let it burn! You know, I mean, that is, is when we finally get the full view of just how insane this guy is. Yeah. Uh, number three, Intersections in Real Time. The, you know, this is the interrogation. Okay, I yeah, I expected that to be on your list. Uh, I I love that. I you know, I think I said at the time that this to me is as good as Chain of Command Part Two. Uh, number two, deconstruction of falling stars. Uh, in in any other season of Babylon Five, deconstruction of falling stars would have been number one. But the number one nod, in my opinion, has to go to Into the Fire. It's the culmination of the. Mm. It is the apex of the series. It is the point yes. of the entire Shadow War. It, all is revealed, and the audience finally understands what it was all about from the beginning. Yeah, uh, we are really, really close on this. Sweet. How about your list, Pete? Okay. Um, number five is going to go to Into the Fire. Okay. I told you I had some trouble with the whole sure. Lorian and the the Shadow and... The, the Vorlon thing and all of a sudden they're just acting like children petulant children <laughs> and sort of like what what happened to these really awesome races they just can't grow up and they're afraid to be alone seriously but I can't ignore all of the rest of what happens in that episode which is really good stuff and I enjoy it so aside from the culminating apex of what this show is supposed to be about I, I enjoy that episode okay Number four for me is going to go to Endgame. Uh, again, for the exact same reasons you mentioned. Great battle scene. And, you know, we finally come back. We've triumphed. We can raise our hands in victory. Yeah. Feels good. Uh, number three, oddly enough, is going to go to Deconstruction of Falling Stars. Okay. Uh, I really, ex I, I, when I was putting my list together, I wrote that one as like the first one. Obviously, because it was the most prevalent in yes. my mind yeah. um, but it's kind at, of the iconic episode of the whole series really as I started writing and looking at other things I was like you know what I I like these other things so much more because of some of the other aspects and it ended up being the, the episodes I liked more were more um, solid all the way across sci-fi and television where I thought deconstruction lacked a little bit in television okay. Number two is going to go for me falling towards apotheosis. Uh, really, I, I just enjoyed um, everything uh, about that episode. Um, the at the very end where we have Cartagia, you know, say, "Hmm, yeah, his eye is bothering me. Pluck it out. Pluck it out." <laughs> Holy crap! How screwed up do you have to be that you just carelessly say, ah, pluck out that eye, please? Wow. Delivered marvelously. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then my number one is going to go to The Long Night. Oh, okay. I, I was just as surprised as, as everyone is about this. I, I really enjoy um, the very end where Cartagena meets his end. 
Um, and I think it is it also in this one? Uh, no, in the next one, um, Into the Fire is where uh, Morden dies. But the the end of Cartagia in here, and I I really enjoyed that one. Okay, really good. How about your favorite moment? Okay, uh, I had some trouble coming up with this, and uh, this afternoon I kind of was like, oh yeah, you know, I I, I want to go with uh, I win every time I say no uh, from the uh, one act play or intersections in real time. Yeah, um, it's not a one act play, a five act play, intersections in real time. But as I was reviewing here right before we started recording, I realized that the really awesome thing from the long night is uh, Jacquard's speech where they the the Narn come to they him want and say to make him a king basically you, you should be our leader we give you all of the power over this and you can help us go back and we can kick the butt of the um, the Centauri and they they're just wrong on so many different levels yeah. um, and well uh, let's take a listen here why are you celebrating? We drove them away. They knew they could not slave us forever, and we drove them off through strength. Is that what you think? Try to understand. The strength that defeated the Centauri is not from weapons or arms. Jakar. You are tired. You're hurt. You're not seeing this as we do. I see, Jalorn. I see better than you can imagine. When you've rested, we will thank you properly, as is your right. There will be celebrations in the street, Jakar. Your name will be a blessing to any who speak it. And then, then, Jakar, you will lead us against our oppressors. You will be the instrument of our vengeance. With you directing us, we will finally destroy the Centauri. You have just tossed someone off that throne. Would you put another in his place so quickly? The Kari spoke with many equal voices, not the one voice of a single leader. We need strength to lead us, fire to forge us. We saw that in the Centauri. Learn that from them. Then you have learned the wrong lessons. I will not take the throne. If the Kari is restored, I will take my place among them, but that's all. I did not fight to remove one dictator just to become another myself. But the Centauri are a lost people! They are to be pitied. They are already on a course for self-destruction. They do not need help from us. We need to redress our wounds, help our people, rebuild our cities. We must strike back! I never thought you a coward, Jakar. We suffered and died during their occupation. Where were you? What have you endured? What have I endured? So for me, the this the powerful thing about the scene is 
when he is shouting at them, you've learned the wrong lesson. Yeah. You guys didn't realize where it is that the Centauri are so screwed up. Um, and he wants nothing to do with them. He walks off and he, the guy's like, hey, what have you suffered? You know, how's life been so, you know, you haven't really suffered like we have. Never mind, he's missing an eye. <laughs> How stupid do you have to be to uh, tell a one-eyed man, you know, what have you suffered? Uh, I really think that that is powerful, and I love that from Jakar. He has finally learned all of the lessons, and he is he's the leader that they should have now. But Jakar has learned the lesson to say, I'm out. I, I'm, I'm not here to set up, uh, you know... My, my own uh, royalty monarchy yes I, I I walk away from this yeah. it's powerful it, it is good stuff I am going to have to go with uh, Ivanova mourning the death of Marcus and you know all of us really no, not really <laughs> no Lee I thought of all of the things you could choose the evil okay, moment. Fine. Fine. You know, Ivanova does give a reasonable performance there, I guess. But hey, you got a joke entry. I had to have a joke entry. Fair I, enough. I am going with Sheridan's assertion that he wins every time he says no. So let's go ahead and give that a listen. Right. Now listen to me. Wake up. There's something you have to understand. Focus. Focus on me why they're doing this to you because you're a war hero one of the few to come out of the minbari war they've invested a considerable amount of time and effort making you a hero in the public's eye the problem is when a war hero starts believing certain things and saying certain things the public listens they figure maybe there's something to it your credibility has become a threat to their credibility so one of them has to go best way out for everyone is for you to confess and lay the blame for what's happened at the feet of the alien government. Whether it's true or not, it doesn't matter. Truth is immaterial. They can sell it, and they will let you live. Note, I said, it is the best way. I did not say it was the only way. The other way, Captain, is a posthumous confession. Your signature is not a problem. They have your image on file. They can create you reading the confession. Well, that's not as good as having you out there where people can see you so they know it's true that even you can be broken. You cannot resist. With a video record, there will always be doubt. It's not the same as breaking you. But I'm told that as of this morning... It is an acceptable option I can save your life right now if you'll let me you know it's funny I was thinking about what you said the preeminent truth of our age is that you cannot fight the system But if, as you say, the truth is fluid, that the truth is subjective, then maybe you can fight the system. 
As long as just one person refuses to be broken, refuses to bow down. But can you win? Every time I say no. I, I hope that I would have that kind of commitment to my, my beliefs under the conditions that Sheridan is going through. And th that idea, like, like, I, like I mentioned in that podcast, that idea that I don't have to think about all the times I'm going to say no. All I have to do is think about this time. If I can just make it just this time and I focus on I only have to say no one more time than you say yes. And that, that I, I honestly believe that that would help compress and condense all those things that are going on down to a single point of, of burning morality that you can say no. Yeah, it is powerful. As I mentioned, it was I almost chose that one, uh, and, and it is right. It, it is something that we should be able to stand for, and say no. My morals tell me that this is wrong, and I will not go past this. You can do whatever you want to me, but I am going to say no. That's what all of those dang <laughs> lily-livered earthers refuse to do. I, I like how you've borrowed that term earthers now. <laughs> Not realizing, apparently, that you yourself are an earther. <laughs> no, no, no. I am a different creature than those people. <laughs> we are not the same. Okay. Uh, yeah, it, it is powerful to, to be able to realize these are my convictions and I will not move from them. And even though it's hard and difficult, I just keep saying no. No, no, no. Okay. Uh, just a couple notes. Uh, remember that next week we are going to be combining Joy's Culture Corner with the Nook of Darkness. <laughs> uh, we're going to be discussing the first novel in the Foundation Trilogy. That's right. Um, uh, are we going to be doing any pre-setup to that, like over the Facebook group? Uh, if Brainy Smurf wants to do something, he can. I don't have any plans oh, okay, so okay. far. Um, and then just be prepared for a very long reading from J. Michael Straczynski next week as he explains how it is that Claudia Christian came to be no longer a member of the Babylon 5 cast heading into Season 5. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of The Homestarmy Presents Trek West 5. We hope that you've learned something, had some laughs, and we always invite your comments to our email at trekwest5 at thehomestarmy.com or you can tweet us at hashtag trekwest5 or call and leave us a voicemail at 801-788-4913. So until next time, I am Joey. And I am Peter. And thanks for listening.